and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sarah Linda Swan, Assistant Professor of Law at Florida State University College of Law. We will discuss her article, Discriminatory Dualism, which is published in the Georgia Law Review. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. The pleasure is really all mine. I'm so glad to have you on. And I'm especially glad that Lizette Pinot of Yale Law Journal recommended your article to me because I really enjoyed reading it. I found it really provocative and thoughtful, and I'm looking forward to sharing your ideas with with listeners. Um, so to start it off, Sarah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by discriminatory dualism and how it differs from other kinds of discrimination. Great. So in this piece, I argue that structural or institu institutional discrimination has a tendency to divide into two seemingly opposing but actually mutually supportive strands. And I call this tendency discriminatory dualism. And I think of it as a form of adaptive discrimination in that it's one way that discrimination changes and morphs and adapts um, to changes in circumstances. Well, so you talk about several different kinds of discriminatory dualism in the paper. And I think maybe kind of digging into those examples a little bit will be helpful for listeners to understand what you mean. And one example that I think might be especially salient for people right now is in relation to policing. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how discriminatory dualism, to your mind, works historically and today in in relation to policing, especially in minority communities? In policing, we see a phenomenon um, of what's been noted as under-policing combined with over-policing. And like the other examples that I talk about in this paper, which are redlining and reverse redlining and sexual harassment and shunning, it's not news to anyone that under and over policing exists. Uh, the contribution of this piece is to show that, in fact, all of these instances are structurally similar and similar in ways that we need to pay more attention to. For the particular context of under and over policing, we know that communities of color and particularly black communities experience over-policing defined as the aggressive over-enforcement of minor or petty crime at the same time as they experience under-policing, the persistent failure to address serious violent crime like homicide. So for instance, in one particular underserviced neighborhood in Los Angeles, there are 41 unsolved homicides for every square mile. We know that each of these uh, strands independently does damage. There's uh, lots of writing about the, the damage um, inflicted by over-policing and the damage inflicted by under-policing. Um, and together, they make a very formidable and durable system that makes it really hard for communities to break out of. Well, I think a lot of people are familiar with objections to over-policing. It feels like the objections to under-policing or at least from my perspective, maybe a little bit less familiar. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that, how, if at all, it might play into the framework you're discussing. And also, like, to what extent is this kind of the, the dualistic part of it, as it were, in this case, like the under-policing, um, intentional or institutional or some combination of both? 
Sure. So under policing, the sort of independent damage that it does um, is is involves a signaling effect in an important way. So it's a signaling effect um, that basically white society um, sees you only as a criminal. It doesn't care about the life life and death um, of loved ones, uh, and it works this deep sort of psychic harm of devaluation. It also has a practical effect in that it deters people from helping police solve crime um, when they know that they're not actually going to make their best efforts to do anything. Um, the sort of cost benefit analysis of what happens if I come forward versus what happens if I don't um, ways towards not coming forward. So it makes community members unlikely to cooperate with police, which itself helps contribute to a high rate of serious crime. And that rate is then used to justify more over-policing. Uh, so over-policing gets all the resources and money. And then the fact that those expenditures are being made on that front of over-policing petty crimes is used to justify not expending more money to remedy the problems with under-policing. Um, so we end up with this under- and over-policing cycle, which one scholar has described as a central paradox of the African-American experience. I mean, based on your description, it sounded like historically, at least in some circumstances, it was a kind of question of priorities, almost like the focus on over-policing petty crimes meant that there was just maybe less money to go around to put into policing more serious crimes or doing law enforcement better. But then it also sounds like there's at least some circumstances more recently where there's kind of an explicit and intentional under policing. Yes, both of those things are true. So what we saw in the wake of the uh, trial for the death of Freddie Gray, for instance, um, is the police force there explicitly saying that they were choosing to engage in under-policing as a result of being criticized for over-policing. Um, and that has also been noted in other cities like Chicago and like New York City. Uh, so sometimes it's just sort of part of a large historical cycle, and sometimes it's quite an explicit um, form of backlash against criticism of over-policing. Well, so maybe you could talk about how this paradigm or dialectic works out in the context of redlining, housing, and, and loans as well, because I thought that was a really interesting story that you told. Yeah, so in redlining, uh, which most people are sort of vaguely familiar with, uh, that practice started way back in the 1940s. And the term refers to how bankers would literally draw red lines on a map of zones that they would not lend in. Um, and they would not do that lending because that was the classification uh, designated by the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Uh, which characterize neighborhoods outlined in red as hazardous, meaning don't lend here. Um, and that was done on the basis of race. So if, if a neighborhood had even one black family, it would be characterized um, as red um, and redlined. That practice was supposed to end when the Fair Housing Act uh, passed in 1968. Uh, that said that this uh, redlining is not okay, uh, but we we still do see it persist. And we see it joined by reverse redlining. Uh, and reverse redlining is not denying credit, but actually exploitatively over-offering it. Uh, so in the 1990s, this really hit its heyday, where lenders targeted the neighborhoods that had been denied credit because of redlining. So were already economically vulnerable because the redlining had happened and were particularly susceptible to the predatory loans 
So they were offered, uh, people in these neighborhoods were offered some subprime loans, meaning expensive, high interest loans made to folks who have poor or short credit histories that are considered to be at higher risk of default than prime borrowers. Um, so these were targeted to black families and families of color. One study documented that a black family making $200,000 per annum was more likely to get a subprime loan than a white family making only $30,000 per annum. Also, intersectional gender and racial discrimination happened a lot here, too. One study um, found that African-American women were 256% more likely to have a subprime mortgage uh, than white men with similar financial profiles. So reverse redlining came in and essentially wiped out any of the gains in minority homeownership that had been made after the Fair Housing Act. Uh, so we see those two sort of in tandem acting to suppress minority homeownership. Well, for some listeners, I think it, uh, there's sort of a parallel observation that you made around higher education and higher education loans and the provision of higher education I mean, I wonder if maybe you could expand on that a little bit, just because I think a lot of listeners are law students or or legal scholars of of various kinds, and it, it struck me as an interesting parallel to the kind of phenomenon that you talk about in relation to the housing market. It is an interesting uh, parallel, and we saw very similar dynamics occurring in the context of higher education, um, very similar to what we saw in, in the redlining and reverse redlining. And that's where we see a pattern of denial, as in denial um, to higher education in general, be followed by a pattern of exploitative over-access. Um, so now instead of having sort of the doors to higher education closed, the doors to certain institutions are flung open wide and they come with uh, what is basically the equivalent of a subprime loan for an educational product that's not going to deliver enough income for anyone to pay that loan back. Well, I mean, especially in relation to policing, housing, and education, I get the impression that there's this way in which the reaction to discriminatory behavior, as you frame it, is kind of a, well, how could it possibly wrong that, be wrong that we're doing exactly what you asked for? Therefore, why would you complain about this behavior we're engaging in now? It's almost like camouflaging the the equally discriminatory aspect of the sort of allegedly um, uh, remedial behavior. Is, is that a fair way of thinking about the kind of dynamic you're talking about? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so what we're seeing is... Um, it's sort of rhetorically packaged. The, the the reverse form of discrimination is rhetorically packaged as the solution um, to complaints about the first form. Uh, sort of, well, we're giving you what you asked for. What could possibly be the problem now? So in the context of policing, for example, uh, when communities say we're being over-policed, the, the response is, well, now you get less police. Um, and when the, when the communities say, well, but actually that's, you know, that has its own problems because it's coming up as under-policing, 
we're not having our serious crime dealt with, uh, then it's sort of like, oh, well, you'll just complain about anything, won't you? Uh, we're solving your problem. Which which is it? Is it, are you under-policed? Are you over-policed? Um, are you redlined? Are you reverse redlined? Are you sexually harassed? Are you shunned? Uh, you, it, it sort of muddles um, what the nature of the actual discriminatory problem is when the problem is, in fact, those two contradictory strands operating in tandem. So maybe you could talk about it then in the context of sexual harassment as well, because you have this sort of dialectic there too of harassment and shunning. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how that worked historically, what's happening now, and how this fits into the same kind of paradigm that you're using to discuss this issue in other contexts. Sure. So in the last few years, uh, obviously, the Me Too social movement exposed uh, the very high rates of sexual harassment in workplaces and society. Um, and here I define sexual harassment as really unwanted sexual attention that highlights some aspect of a person's uh, gender or sexual identity in a way that's disparaging or diminishing. And it's a way of maintaining gender and social hierarchies in workplaces. So it's not based on sort of, I just want you too much, or I desire someone too much. Um, it's actually um, uh, got a, a very important social function. After Me Too did this important work of increasing the recognition and the redress for sexual harassment, we saw the rise of its discriminatory opposite um, through shunning. And the shunning happens when male workers uh, don't give unwanted sexual attention to women. They just refuse to pay attention to women workers at all. Uh, so they refuse to work with them. They refuse to mentor them. They refuse to hire them. And Professor Joanna Grossman actually memorably articulated this sort of discriminatory dualism dynamic in this context um, when she noted, and this is her quote, we have a president who brags about grabbing women by the pussy and a vice president who won't even have dinner with them. These are two sides of the same coin, both reflecting the fundamentally unequal sphere working women inhabit because of male behavior. So we see sexual harassment coupled with shunning um, to continually suppress women's advances in the workplace. Well, especially in the context of sexual harassment and shunning, I couldn't help but feel like the phenomenon you're describing is sort of like a version of what people might call like gaslighting. Is that like a fair assessment of the sort of dynamic that's taking place, uh, or at least an element of what you're kind of looking at or describing when you talk about discriminatory dualism? Yes, there's definitely an element of gaslighting um, as part of that sort of conceptual trickery um, that happens when you have two contradictory strands that seem like they both can't be true um, and that it's unreasonable to complain about both of them happening at the same time. Well, so one thing I was wondering about while reading your paper was, you know, you, you provide a bunch of different examples of this phenomenon and how it plays out in practice. But I kind of wondered, like, how broad of a phenomenon or how universal of a phenomenon do you think this is? I mean, do you think that this is like a kind of structural feature of discrimination writ large? Or does it seem to play out in some circumstances more extensively than in others? And to the extent that that might be true, 
are there particular kind of social features that make particular institutions or interactions vulnerable to the kind of phenomenon that you're describing? That's such an interesting question, and I don't know that I have a good answer for it at this point. Um, I, this discriminatory dualism is does not describe the entire universe of discrimination, obviously, um, and there's different patterns and different adaptations that discrimination takes over time, um, but this is one important reoccurring pattern. Um, so I, in the paper, I talk about the examples, the under and over policing, the reverse redlining and reverse redlining, the sexual harassment and the shunning. And I also mention um, order maintenance uh, policies of exclusion and containment um, and the higher education uh, denial and exploitative over access. In addition to those ones, I have a couple of follow-up pieces. Um, one which argues that actually the procedural problems that we're seeing with Title IX and campus sexual assault is a form of discriminatory dualism. Um, so there I argue that we used to have procedures weighted against complainants, heavily weighted against complainants. And now at some schools, we're seeing procedures that are weighted against respondents, which sounds like it's going to discriminate against men who are typically the respondents. Uh, but I argue that actually this is discriminatory dualism, which is going to ultimately work to the detriment of gender equality because the procedural unfairness to respondents here is going to confirm the stereotypes that are underlying the initial problems with Title IX, that stereotype being that women are not credible witnesses and are committed to punishing men for perceived slights and imagined harms, no matter what the cost. I also argue that this is going to under this um, sort of focus on, on procedural unfairness to respondents is going to undermine the remaining and existing arguments about uh, the unfairness that still happens to complainants. So again, we see the confusion about what is the real problem um, uh, and, and eventually it establishes the same kind of double bind that we see in the other examples. So that's one interesting uh, place uh, where discriminatory dualism occurs again. Another is in the context of marriage. Um, and so that's the second forthcoming piece that I'll have um, on this same uh, topic writ large. Um, and there we see what I've called in a earlier piece, um, a movement from coverture to reverse coverture along with competing um, marriage promotion and marriage denial programs in related to uh, uh, impoverished people. Um, and also the issue um, that we're seeing now in gay marriage, where what was once denied looks like it is starting to become also sort of de facto obligatory. Uh, so we do see discriminatory dualism popping up in all of these different, uh, quite disparate contexts. And I don't know that there's anything uniting them at this point, uh, but I'll think more about that as I, as I grapple with them. Excellent. Well, I mean, I found it like theoretically a really helpful framework for thinking about this kind of rhetorical move on the part of institutions and political actors. I was wondering if you had any thoughts for people kind of on the ground trying to operationalize resistance to these kinds of moves in practice? In other words, what should people be looking for? What should they be attentive to, to your mind, in thinking about these kinds of rhetorical strategies as they're being deployed in the moment? Well, two things. The first is I think that anytime 
we're addressing or trying to address a discriminatory problem, um, one thing this paper suggests is that we should always keep in mind the possibility that it's going to flip into its opposite mode. Um, and so any sort of remedial strategies, I think, should be done with an eye to this possibility um, that, that we'll just see the reverse version occur. The second thing is I think it shows how um, things like movements like defund the police are probably the only real options. So one thing I hope I, I get across in this paper is just how, um, I don't want to say good, but how effective these systems are at doing what they want to do um, and how difficult it really is to get out of them. And I, I think I offer some sort of um, solutions at the margins in the piece, but I really, when it all comes down to it, uh, the only way I see forward from, from moving away from these patterns of discriminatory dualism is getting out from underneath the institutions that are practicing it. Um, and so reconceptualizing um, sort of the role of the police as an institution in society, um, I think, is really the only way forward in breaking that under and over policing cycle. Um, reconceptualizing why we need to rely on the financial institutions we rely on with these histories of discrimination, um, or whether we can create public banks um, or look at different forms of ownership, um, but really just move away from the from the dependence on the institutions we've had. Well, so maybe you could talk then a little bit about some of the potential marginal moves or marginal fixes that you discuss in the paper and why you think that those might run the risk of being recouped or um, uh, undermined by the institutions they're resisting. So in the paper, I talk a little bit about some um, – sort of uh, successful or, or apparently successful at this point, changes in policing, um, where in particular places, police departments have really focused on um, not arresting and increasing community safety um, and how that uh, is starting to work. Um, but I do think that eventually it will just fall back into familiar patterns um, unless we do things like, um, as one scholar suggests, just completely reconceptualize what safety means. In terms of the redlining and reverse redlining, um, I was really partial to the idea um, that particularly public institutions like states should, should take their own money away from the financial institutions that are uh, engaging in discriminatory practices um, and so sort of starve them out financially to the point where it becomes um, not financially lucrative for them to engage in these discriminations. Um, so what, what we've seen in the past is sort of any attempts to um, get financial institutions to, um, to fix themselves um, or straighten up or stop their discriminatory practices. There's just never enough money involved um, in, punish, in, in punishing them. Um, it, it still remains worth their while to, to engage in these practices. Um, and until that changes, and that would need to have a huge um, sort of exogenous shock in order for that to happen, uh, which I just don't see realistically occurring. Um, so I think it, it's going to have to be a sort of, um, all of us are going to have to take our money out of those institutions that perpetuate these harms. And all of our, we're going to have to lobby our local governments and our state governments um, to, to also remove their funding. In terms of sexual harassment and shunning, uh, one of the interesting things is that I, I argue that 
sort of within the reverse strands of all of these discriminatory practices, there's this seed for what we could do to, to get better. Um, and in, in the sexual harassment and shunning context, Right now, we shun victims when they come forward um, often. It's starting to change with Me Too, uh, but we could do more to shun perpetrators. Um, and some people like Catherine McKinnon um, feel like that can be really powerful. And so we're starting to see that with things like job terminations, when, when uh, these stories of sexual harassment and sexual um, abuse and assault come Ultimately, though, I think to sort of to to really break out of the gender hierarchy that those systems are upholding, um, you just you need more fundamental uh, social change. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially when it came to the sexual harassment context, but it seems like it was pervasive in some of the other conversations you were or other observations you were making as well. I, I mean, I I heard echoes of the current kind of controversy over quote unquote, cancel culture as well. And especially in the context of shunning, I mean, it seemed like almost a version of the phenomenon you were describing in your paper of sort of like giving with one hand and taking away with the other. Yeah. So cancel culture is, um, I think, sort of a, um, a function of of not knowing quite what to do sometimes um, with with harassers um, and not having many options in regards to sort of show um, our antipathy for what has happened um, and to move forward to sort of a state of repair and gender equality. I think we're quite clumsy at doing that right now. Um, and cancel culture is sort of um, one of those things, though it, cancel culture itself is really um, in many ways overblown. So there's this idea that people are being punished too harshly by being ostracized. Um, but what we see play out over time is that actually that ostracization is pretty temporary. Um, and most people um, are starting from positions of such power that they tend to be okay after cancel culture happens to them. So people like Louis C.K., he's going to be okay. Um, people like Matt Lauer, he's going to be okay. Um, so there's also sort of who, who should we be concerned about? Um, and is this where our concern should be? going towards. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I, I was, it, it really was a weird way in which I was like, oh, wait, I mean, in, in a sense that is kind of like turning the perpetrator into the victim and saying the only tool that you really have for correcting and, and kind of quote unquote, socially punishing this kind of behavior shouldn't be available to you because it's all of a sudden painful to them, which just seems really strange. Agreed. Yeah. And so, and discriminatory dualism, I think, is one of those moments where we see um, sort of twists in, in uh, rhetorically positioning people as, as victims instead of perpetrators. Um, obviously, the sort of victim-perpetrator line, um, as any criminologist will tell you, um, is itself sort of a facade. Um, and a lot of people are on both sides a lot of the time. Um, but in this instance, it's sort of, um, it, it sort of pa paints people as being unjustly punished um, when actually sometimes it is a just punishment. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a really interesting paper. Um, I learned a lot from it and I really enjoyed discussing with you and I hope, I hope listeners will check it out because it's a great read. Thank you so much.
my search will never cease for the girl on the police gazelle. Or the pretty young brunette on the pink police gazelle. And above my mantelpiece there's a page of the police gazelle. With the pretty young brunette on the pink police gazelle. I love to stop at my favorite barber shop just to take another look at the girl that I haven't met yet. And my longing will increase for the girl on the police gazette, for the pretty young brunette on the pink police gazette. 